So this morning, um, I'm calling it the gift of Easter, God for us forever. And I'm going to look at a passage that typically we don't talk about on Easter, but uh, I'd like to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. If you don't own a Bible, there's a bookshelf out in the foyer that has Bibles and other resources back there. Um, So please pick up anything that's of interest to you or just really glad that you're here. Um, In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then what we are doing here is a total waste of time. And of all people, as I read, we are most to be pitied. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and that is all that there is, if Christ did not rise from the dead. I thoroughly believe that Christ rose from the dead. Um, It's one of the things that convinced me to bow my knee to Jesus Christ back in 1985, a long, long time ago, before many of you were born, as I'm realizing how old I am getting. Uh, But the reality is, um, that is an event to me that you have to reckon with wherever you're coming from in life. Who was this Jesus, and why did this new upstart religion take off and become so popular. And to me, the best understanding of why these disciples that were cowering in fear one day, short time later, were willing to stand before rulers of the day and say, you can do whatever you want to do to me, but I'm not going to shut up about my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what turned an avid persecutor of the church named Saul into one that was willing to endure innumerable trials and difficulties and brutalities to proclaim the very gospel of Jesus Christ. To me, it's an appearance of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. But that's not what I'm going to primarily focus on this morning. There's a bunch of books uh, out on our book table, The Case for Easter, The Case for Christ, The God Who Is There, uh, The Reason for God, Story of Reality, that deal with more of why do we believe what we believe. What I wanted to look at this morning is more what does an understanding of Jesus' death on the cross mean to us individually and personally and corporately? Let me ask you a question. Why Why are you here this morning? I think all of us are here. We're looking for life. We're looking for for something. And you say, Brett, I came here. Somebody dragged me here. I don't think I believe a word that you're saying, but still you're here. You're looking for life. You're, you may have been invited here by some cute girl or a handsome young man. And you're here like, I don't believe any of this stuff, but hey, you're still looking for life. What, what are you looking? You're looking for life because, okay, if I go to church, then maybe this person in this relationship will develop. And that's where life is found in this relationship. We are all as our government documents say, we're all pursuing happiness. And I think that's something that God has wired in to each and every one of us. The problem is that happiness is really, really hard to discover and really hard to find. And once we find it, it seems to vanish really quickly. Or the thing that provided happiness for a little while doesn't seem to be providing the happiness that it once did. And if you look at the book of Romans chapter 8, it says that God basically subjected creation to futility. And I'm thinking, what is that? And why did God do that? I think there's a planned happiness obsolescence that's wired in 
to creation. And follow me here. If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, to me it's, it's one of the most important books for people in our day and age to read. Because here we have a guy, and it, it says an amazing thing in the book of Ecclesiastes, that he denied himself nothing his heart desired. Now, I'm not Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos that I have the ability to do that, that anything this world can provide, I will be able to acquire. I am not a Russian oligarch with a $600 million yacht. But even those people, you realize that they achieve these things, and then there's something more that they're still looking for. Because I can guarantee you that there's another Russian oligarch or some oligarch somewhere that's building a boat in some shipyard that's not a $600 million yacht, largest in the world, it's a $650 million yacht. Because 40 staterooms aren't enough, you need 45 on a yacht that you spend two days a year at just because you're able to buy it. We may be, not be Russian oligarchs, but I think probably all of us have experienced this planned happiness obsolescence, right? You think something is going to satisfy you. You think this relationship is going to satisfy you, that this is going to be the person, and it is the person for two to three weeks, two to three years, and then you realize, wow, this person's, this person's a person. They got some issues, right? <laughs> They're not all that I thought they were. So then we move on to the next person because that's going to be the one, right? And you go through a series of these relationships and you realize, wow, the sexual thrill and the emotional excitement, that all tends to wane and it just becomes one person after the other, after the other, after the other, and it leaves you ultimately dissatisfied. Or you think, this is going to be the job, right? This, this is the thing that will satisfy me. And then you get in that job and you realize, wow, this is the boss that comes with this job. And it's not quite as thrilling. Or you realize, wow, you and this other person are, are competing for this next rung on the ladder. And you realize, wow, this other person is willing to put 80 hours a week in to grab that next rung. And so then you've got a decision at that point in time. Either I've got to pony up and put in 80 hours a week to compete with this person. Or I don't do that. And then I have to deal with the frustration of not getting the next rung on the ladder. So either way, the job doesn't produce what we desired it to produce. And as you look at life, we are in the midst of a culture that is pursuing whatever we feel is going to provide us with happiness, but it doesn't seem that the overall happiness level of our culture is increasing, does it? In fact, if you look at any statistics in terms of suicide, all these kind of things, the more we pursue this stuff, it seems like almost the the less happy we get, the less fulfilled we get. And I think the reason that is is because God has designed futility into creation. Why? Because though there are many beautiful things in creation and many things that God has designed that are wonderful and pleasurable and good gifts from him, that when beautiful things become ultimate things, they end up being ugly things. You can see this even in, in good things. When the family becomes, this is the thing that I'm, I'm going to make my mark in this world by my family and my kids are going to achieve and they're going to be the ones that provide value and significance and worth to me. And then we helicopter parent, right? And we micromanage and our kids end up saying, I just back off, get out of my life. 
So even good things, beautiful things, can become ugly things when they become that thing in my life that I'm looking to to produce happiness. To me, we are all looking for that elusive goal of happiness or joy. And I think our desires are insatiable. They cannot be satisfied with what this world provides. You look at any arena, any area, it's like people keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and we're trying to satisfy our unsatisfiable desire, our infinite desire with something finite. And as I understand scripture, I'm created for a relationship with God. I'm created to be in relationship with God and, and to flourish in that relationship and outside of that relationship, when that relationship is torn or broken, all those things, even those good things that God has provided will not be ultimately satisfying things because they're disconnected from the giver and my relationship with this ultimate being that is able ultimately to satisfy me. So where does that satisfaction come from? I think Romans 8 tells us it comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ by trust and faith. And that is not something we can manufacture or can make happen. It is something that God simply gives to us as a gift. Let me read this section and we'll talk a little bit about it this Easter morning. This is verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? All these things that have come before in the whole book of Romans. And we've gone through Romans and we've seen that Paul lays out this case that all of us are messed up. No matter how religious or irreligious pagan party you are or the person that's in church in every Bible study that ever existed, right? Both of those people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's interesting that when we're outside of that, Scripture talks about the wrath of God. And I used to think about the wrath of God as like God zapping people, you know, like sp spontaneous human combustion. Okay, that, that's the right. You're just walking along and all of a sudden, you know, you're no longer there. I'll let the physicists and scientists and chemists talk about how that happens. But in reading Romans 1, you realize that, wow, when I had walked away from God and was doing my own thing, I was experiencing the wrath of God. Because sometimes the wrath of God is displayed not in something terrible happening to us, but in God saying, this is what you really want? Okay, have at it. Go for it. And you will find as you eventually go down that road, if you're willing and humble enough to recognize that this is not what you thought it was going to be, and that pressure can be something beautiful that's used by God to turn us around. So I think we are a nation experiencing the wrath of God right now. And you're saying, well, you know, we're not being invaded by an enemy. There's not all these terror. You know, no, we're a culture that, in essence, we can do whatever we want. And God has said, okay, you want to do that? You want to see if life is found in doing whatever you want? Then have at it. But that is going to produce things that you don't really want in your life. So often in Scripture... We see God not as this being that is trying to rob us and rip us off, but is trying to provide us with life 
In our stupidity and our arrogance, we think we're smarter than God and we think, I know what is going to make me happy. God does not know that. So I'm going to choose, like Adam and Eve chose, to define right and wrong by myself, to do my own thing, in essence, to usurp his place. And in essence, he says, okay, have at that for a little while, but let's see how that goes in your life. And God says, I've designed you to walk in relationship with me, to rule and co-reign with me over this planet, to steward it, to be a ruler with God, to experience life and life to the full. And you keep pushing that away because you think you know better than me. And God says, I'm come that they may have life and have that life to the full. God's not trying to rob us and he's not trying to rip us off. He's trying to give us life. But so often, like the Proverbs say, there's a way that seems really right to us. Oh, I gotta have this thing. This thing is what's gonna make me happy. And he says that ultimately is gonna end in death and destruction in our lives. And you look at our culture and you see addictions of every variety and style and source, no matter what it is, you know. We've got workaholics, we've got sexaholics, we've got alcoholics, we've got fentanylaholics, we've got everywhere, you know, it's like, okay. And that's what the Lord says. You know, you think you're master, but ultimately those things that you give ultimate allegiance to will rule and reign over your life. How you're meant to operate is under my rule and reign, and it's a beneficial rule and reign for you because I want what's best for you. I'm a God that delights to give good gifts to my children. Stop pushing me aside. So Paul, he explains this as he goes through Romans. We've all sinned and fallen short, but God has this amazing gift that he's willing to give to us through our trust in Jesus Christ, and that's forgiveness and restoration of this relationship. And he says, that is an amazing gift of God. Don't turn your back on it. And when you do that, then the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life and begins to enable you to do the things that you can't do. Because if you just think Christianity is this kind of moral code of ethics that I'm going to come to church and I'm going to get my act together. We'll see how long that works out for you. Because as I read scripture, I don't have the ability to get my act together. Read Romans 7, the very chapter that comes before this. How many of you have been in this situation? The very thing that you said, I am never going to do this again. You end up 24 hours later doing the same thing again. Or the very thing is like, okay, I'm going to be good. I'm going to do this thing. And then three weeks pass and you haven't done the good thing yet. And what does Paul say? Oh man, I'm wretched. Who's going to rescue me from this conundrum that I'm in? The things that I know are good and I agree in my heart, this is what's moral and what's good, I can't do. And what does he say? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on to say, there's no condemnation therefore for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because when we're there and when we stumble and when we fall, we feel like, oh, I don't measure up, I'm not there. And so the Lord wants to know that, you know what? If you're in Christ, you're not condemned. There's freedom. So that is what God lays out for us in Romans. And then he says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one 
who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a reading of God's word. So the first point Paul makes here is if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the first thing that Paul recognizes is the Father gave us the Son on the cross. He gave us the gift of this one bore my rebellion and the consequences of that rebellion, which Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And Christ bore that. And if it's given, it's what? A gift, right? And I think it's obvious, but oftentimes we forget this. We gave him up for us all. He will graciously give us all things. One thing I see here is that the Father isn't a discriminating giver. He gave, us up, gave him up for us all. It's not just for God's favorites. It's not just for those that are towing the line. It's not just for those who are the good people. It's for us all, and it's a gift. And we've seen this as in Christ as he interacts with people in the world who are the ones that Jesus seems to have the most difficulty with. It's not the prostitutes. It's not the tax collectors. It's not the ones that society would say, whoa, they're really, really far from God. It's the ones that say, oh, I've got this thing down with God. That guy, he needs forgiveness. Me, I'm in church all the time. Look at how good that I am. He gave him up for us all. So the Father, he isn't a discriminating giver. He gives to all who will receive. The Father isn't also a grudging giver. You know those obligatory gifts that, that you get? There's someone in our family that always gives gifts, and it's, it's always fun for us to open those gifts because we never know exactly what that gift will be. And you're like, okay, this is the obligatory gift. It comes at Christmas, but it's like, wow, is this really a gift? I'm not really sure if it's a, if it's a gift or not. It was given because it was required to be given. But look at what he says. Will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He's just... The scripture says, abounding with loving kindness. It's not like he has limited resources, right? He is like, this is what is mine and what I have given to my son and then what I want to give to you. Romans 3.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Isaiah 9.6 for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. So 
we want this happiness in our life. How do we get it? And oftentimes we think, well, I'm going to just go on this task of self-improvement. I'm going to become a better person. God says, that's not how it happens. You've got to receive this gift that I give. You cannot earn a gift. If someone gives you a gift and you pull out a 50 and say, thanks, how's that person going to respond? They're going to be offended, right? It's like, this is a gift. You're trying to pay me for that, you know? And so it's a gift. And I think sometimes we in the church forget that. Or we that have been believers for a little while realize, oh, now I've got to get this all together and keep my act together and do everything perfectly. And it's like, no, this is a gift. Yes, it's a gift that should be transforming in my life, but it's not earned, it's not merited, it's not warranted because I'm a good boy or you're a good girl. It's because God is a graciously generous, giving God that has provided this son and life to all who will trust in him. Second thing is that gifts, they're of no benefit to us unless they're received, right? There can be an awesome gift, and if I don't unwrap that thing, it's of no benefit to me at all. It's like, who won't receive a gift? Lots of people, I think, right? You don't think you need it, right? It's like somebody is like coming up to Elon Musk and say, hey, you know, Elon, I'd really like to give you a 10 bucks Starbucks gift card. And Elon's like, no, if I wanted a coffee, I'd buy the whole stinking Starbucks franchise, right? I don't need that gift, thank you very much. Or people who don't see the value in it. It's like, I don't want that. You clean out, your uncle's cleaning out the attic, and there's this old dusty guitar in there. It's from like the 1940s, and, you know, it's, there's some wood in it that's from Brazil, and you're like, I don't like foreign stuff anyhow, and it's got this Martin name on the top, and it's like, ah, uh, no, you just, I don't want that. Thank you very much. And then you realize, as your uncle brings that on Antiques Roadshow, it's worth 150 grand, and it's like, what was I doing? That was really, really valuable, right? What is the value of life? that will go on forever, of true and lasting joy and peace in the midst of our world. What does Jesus say? What does it profit a person to gain the whole world? The whole world. I mean, that's more than Musk. It's more than Gates. It's more than whatever oligarchs. It's the whole thing. You gain that whole thing, but you lose your soul. It's... The guy that had a bumper crop and said, man, I'm going to build barns because I am set forever right now, man. I struck it big. I just sold my tech company for $100 million to Google, and I'm just going to... And what does Jesus say to that guy? Fool. And when you hear fool in Scripture, it doesn't mean intellectually deficient. It means morally unaware. He says, fool, this very night, you're going to stand before the living God of the universe. And all that stuff is going to profit you absolutely nothing. Do we see the value in the gift of Christ? It's a value beyond anything that we can put a number on, right? We're all going to face death. That's the great equalizer. And that's just the reality. No one gets out of this world alive. And that's one of the things, as you read through Ecclesiastes, that keeps bugging the writer, and he takes this view under the sun. It's like, wow, I can do all this, I can achieve all this, but man, 
when I die, what's the difference? All the stuff I've accumulated, maybe my son or daughter is going to be a genius and going to manage this all well, or maybe they're going to spend it all on coke and whatever, and it's all going to be gone in three years. And it just frustrates him to death, and he says it's just all vapor. It's pointless. It's meaningless. Why go on? But to all of us who live under the sun, God says, I want to give you a gift that's going to take you through even death, as we read. What's that worth? What's the value of that? Sometimes we won't accept the gift because that would require some humility on our part. It's always more comfortable to be the giver than the receiver, right? You're struggling, maybe financially, somebody knows that and says, oh man, I know your car's about dead here, I really want to gift you this car. And you're like, oh, I'm proud, I'm going to earn my own way. My car stinks. This is a really nice one, but no, no thank you. My car's fine. I'll be fixing it 12 times this week, but it's fine. Because I'm not a beggar. So we don't accept it because it's going to require some humility and swallowing of pride. And then sometimes we don't accept gifts because we don't trust the giver. Or we realize, man, with this gift, there's a whole lot of strings attached. And I've seen parents do this with kids, and it's like, okay, we're going to give you this gift as long as you stay in this house and live three doors down from us for the rest of your life. And you're like, oh, okay, thanks for the offer, but we will pass on that one and keep renting for a little while longer. On Easter, we celebrate this amazing gift that God has given to us in Jesus. And even if we don't think we need it, we do. We need it desperately. Scripture says we've all rebelled. We've all fallen short of God's standards. And if we think we're so good, and the Old Testament says even our best deeds, our righteousness, it's like filthy rags. It's not impressive to God. It may be impressive to the person next to you, but it's not impressive to God. Because God looks not only at what you are doing, but the motive behind it. And most of us, when we give extravagantly or do things that are really noble, there's some of it, it's, yeah, I'm going to get a little glory out of this. And I always say, it's going to be the healthy wing of the hospital, right? I am so benevolent and so generous. We desperately need the gift of Christ. It's also a gift that's valuable beyond belief. The very life of God, eternal life, life that will go on forever. And it's not just quantity of life, it's quality of life. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I think most of us who've lived long enough realize that the most fulfilling thing in life is relationships, right? It's not the stuff we accumulate in this world, right? All that stuff, it's like, yeah, it's stuff, it's exciting for a few years, and then you realize, oh, man, the roof is leaking, you know, the refrigerator dies, you know, the HVAC system goes out, and, you know, it's just, life is maintenance, right? And it's not so exciting. But relationships, even in this broken world, are the thing that provides most satisfaction. And Jesus is saying, you know what is real life, that life of an eternal quality that, yes, it endures past the grave, but it... It's valuable here and now, and that's a relationship with the God of this universe that can give you peace and hope. 
But accepting this gift, it's going to require humility. There's just no way around that. We don't come to Christ unless we admit we've got a need, that we have fallen short, that the Bible says we've sinned, we've missed the mark. And we've wanted to do our own thing. We wanted to be the one that writes the rules. We wanted to be the one that determines what is right and wrong. And I know that because I've been there. I'm a stubborn person and from a family of stubborn people. And it took me a while to get there. But to realize that, you know, yeah, this is going to require some humble pie and realize that I don't have everything it takes to manage life and to experience happiness in life. And I've run after and chased after this, this, and this, and it hasn't really provided me with life. So where is life to be found? And God says, it's in me. But you know what? You've got to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as your Lord and your Savior and to trust in him. And to trust in him is more than just, yeah, I believe that there was this guy named Jesus who existed and walked around. Yeah, that's very true. But to trust in someone means that you're willing to follow that person. Dallas Willard has a description of Christians that I really like. He calls us apprentices of Christ. That I come to Christ first just recognizing, man, I'm poor in spirit. I got nothing to give you, Jesus, other than I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And he says, yes, great. Now my Holy Spirit will begin to work in you, and then I want you to begin to apprentice along with me to seek to live the kind of life that Jesus lives so that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It starts with humility, though, and to recognize also that the giver, there's an immense amount of trustworthiness in this giver. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that for you, all of you who have trusted Christ, you might become rich. Scripture says Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know about you, but the concept of the God of the universe who created the billions and billions of light years of this universe that was willing to take on a human form, not to come here, so everybody looked at him and said, oh, wow, but to enter in to a poor family, and to experience life. That same passage from Isaiah said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He didn't come into this world designing himself as the only person ever who could do that, as someone that was spectacularly awesome. You know, 6'7", 275, 2% body fat, you know, with a chiseled face, looking amazing. No, he came in and he's like, ah, he's an okay-looking dude. But there was the beauty of the God of the universe there inside He wants to bless us. He delights in us. That's why he came. He came to seek and to save those that are lost. The problem is that so many of us don't think we're lost. We think we're found. And we keep running after things and we keep digging out these things that we think will hold water and they do for a little while, but eventually drip, 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 it all leaks out and it's dry. And you're like, oh, that wasn't the right one. I'm going to dig another one over here. And God says... I'm come that they may have living water. Living water is that flowing stream, that spring that bubbles up from the ground. It's not this pit that you dig that gets kind of feeded and nasty after a while, but it's a spring. It's going up to a high elevation in Colorado, and there's this crystal clear water coming down, and it's already pre-chilled, and you're just, yeah, just up above where the animals are so you don't get too hard, and those fun kind of things, right? He's come to give us life. And then Paul gives... Three, four questions, but two are kind of closely related in this section that enable us, I think, to unpack some of the benefits 
of what it means to be in relationship with this God. The first is in verse 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now you think about that, it's like, well, a lot of people can be against us, right? But who can ultimately be against you? Who's going to take God out of the picture? And as we look at life, there's this misconception sometimes in Christianity that bad things don't happen to Christians. That's not the reality. You read previously in Romans 8. He says, man, we're living in a beautiful but a very broken world. And this creation is groaning. And not only is the creation groaning, we are groaning along with it. Right? And he says that God has the ability in all these things, and all the brokenness of this world, to bring good out of those things for those who believe. But it doesn't mean that those tough things don't happen to Christians. They do. Christians bury their children. As we've experienced in our family, Christians' brothers sometimes, for the cause of Christ, get martyred. Christians get cancer. Christians experience abuse and rape and all sorts of horrible things, but the promise of God is those things ultimately will not take us down as believers. And part of that, I think we understand. That even in the tough stuff, there's good that can happen, right? Those of you who have been in athletics, right, you have coaches sometimes that treat you really badly, right? When I was growing up, it's like, okay, you... There's certain times of year where you have to participate till the point of puking, okay? And when a few people puke, it's like, oh, that's good. That's good. Now we're working you hard. And you didn't just walk off and say, I'm done with this. Why? Because you knew, okay, this person was pushing me in to something that I need later on, so I'll be able to then make it through 60 minutes of running around without puking at that stage, but I've been a little fat and lazy during the summer and ate a few too many bonbons, and now I need to be pushed a little. You know, the old adage, no pain, no gain, and we see this in basically every discipline, that there's a certain amount of difficulty that comes with pursuing anything of value. And so I think we understand that in one sense, that, okay, even in the midst of difficult stuff, God can bring something good out of that, because most of us have experienced that in life. But then there's another aspect of that that I think is going to be mysterious. That I don't know how God is going to bring good out of this. Imagine you're one of the followers of Jesus on Good Friday. You see this man that you said, wow, this is the one that's going to rescue Israel. This is the one that's going to bring in the kingdom of God that he's talked about. It's amazing. And then you see him betrayed by one of your close friends who comes up to Jesus, gives him a kiss, and in essence stabs him in the back. And these Romans and Jews, the leaders, take him and conspire, and he's crucified, and he's hanging there, and he dies, and he's buried. And you look at this and you say, there is absolutely no way that this tragic death can produce anything good. That's where we are sometimes with God. We do not know what is coming. But that, I would say, the most tragic event in all of history produced the greatest benefit in all history. Life 
and forgiveness to all who will trust Jesus Christ. Because there was Friday, but there was also Easter Sunday morning where Jesus conquered death. But a lot of times I don't have answers for questions of why really difficult things happen. But if you read through Romans, you recognize that Paul says, you know, there's going to be suffering in this life. There's going to be affliction. And crazily, Paul and James say, you know, when you get in those hard times and it's really, really difficult, you know what you need to do? Rejoice. And you're like, well, I am so far from that most times. It's not my first go-to. It's like, yeah, thanks. But why is he saying that? Because we have the assurance that God is at work in the midst of this situation for something beneficial ultimately to happen. And I may not understand that, and it may not necessarily be for me. To me, the classic example of this in Scripture is Joseph. You know, sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he gets to the end of their life and says, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. So I don't have all the answers for all the difficulties, but I do know that God is still for us. And sometimes when we get in the midst of those situations, we tend to look at our circumstances and not look at the cross. The only way sometimes that I understand that Jesus is for me in the midst of life that's going sideways is that when I remember, look at what that Savior did for me. If he did this for me, even though I don't understand what is going on, he's going to provide what I need and do what I need in life. So that's the first question. If God's for us, who can ultimately be against us? That's going to provide freedom from this fear and anxiety of living in this very broken world. This world is very broken, right? And it's brokenness spills over all over the place. You can't have to watch the news for five minutes and you realize, wow, this is a really messed up and broken place. And scripture says one of the reasons for this messed up and broken place is our stupid messed up and broken choices, right? We make terrible choices and those spill over on other people. And scripture also says that there is a reality of a malevolent spiritual force out there that is also influencing the brokenness of this world. And to me, you look at some of the activities that are going on in a world global stage right now, and it's like if you don't see pure evil behind some of that, then I think you're missing something. It's just not evil human actors, but there's a spiritual force out there that is desiring to destroy and kill and maim, and it's real and it's potent. Yet Christ has defeated those enemies. Who can be ultimately against us? So that provides fear, freedom from fear of the insecurity of living in this broken world. Then it moves on, and we can have freedom from the fear of, of not being enough. I think a lot of us struggle with this fear. Verse 33, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, a lot of people, right? Sometimes myself more than anybody else. I look at myself and say, this is where I should be, but this is where I'm not. And the accusations run around in my brain and it's like, okay, do I measure up? Am I enough? And oftentimes it's like, no, you don't measure up. You're not enough. And we live in a world of constant comparison where everything is out there all the time and we're getting, mm, mm, mm. How do we deal with all of this, right? Are you meeting the standard? 
It may not just be a religious standard. It's like, are you meeting the standard of beauty? Are you meeting the standard of performance? Are you meeting the standard of achievement? What are you doing to validate your worth? Come on, show me. And the deal with that is that there's always, here's the bar, you get over that bar, there's always a new bar, right? And you look at life and you say, okay, I'm gonna make beauty my standard, and then you look at these people that in their 70s and 80s are striving to look like they did when they were 20, and they don't. And they've got their lips that have been, you know, it's like, what in the world? You're not 20. Life is not found in being the icon of beauty still. That is not where life is found, and if you think it's found there, just get old. Recognize, oh man, it's happening. Jesus lets us know that there's no one, when we have trusted him, that can ultimately bring a charge against us. Why? Because he's the judge. If he's the one that justified us, if he's the judge that's sitting there and he said, this, this one is mine, he's acceptable, who's going to say, eh, not meeting standard? And not only that, but he's interceding for us. God is for us. Do you believe that? Let me ask you a question. What picture comes into your mind when you think of Jesus or the Father looking at you? What expression is on his face? I think a lot of us look at that and say, man, not again, Helvie. How many times have we talked about this? Pretty disappointed, once again, in your subpar performance. I don't think that's how Jesus looks at us. Even when we blow it, he's like, okay, my child, this is not who I have made you to be. Let's return, let's work on this. Scriptures tell us that God delights in his children, that he rejoices over us with singing. I don't know about you, but that's just really hard for me to grasp and to think of God like that. My view of God tends to be more, okay, there's a list of 17 things God wants me to do. Oh, man, today I got 14 of those accomplished. And he's like, what about the last three? <laughs> Instead of, oh, awesome, you did 14. I was only expecting you from your past history to do seven of those. You're doing good. <laughs> he accepts us. But he said, I'm not acceptable. He knows that. That's why he died on the cross. If you could make yourself acceptable, why would he have come and died? That's the point of what he has done. And once he has accepted us and he has taken our punishment, there's no more punishment to be meted out. We're not enough on our own. That's the reality. That's Romans 7. I don't have enough willpower to change myself. I just don't. But with the Holy Spirit in my life, I do. And the beautiful thing that this passage lets us know that Jesus Christ himself is interceding for us. But prior to that, he says the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. So we got two members of the Trinity that are going to the Father and saying, okay, we're on Brett's side, come on. The Father's like, yeah, I know, I'm on his side too. I was the one that sent Jesus and I'm going to graciously give Brett all things. So... 
Do you have the fear of not being enough? Jesus wants you to know that in him you are enough. You don't have to meet a certain standard of achievement or popularity or success or religious performance to be accepted by God. If Christ has accepted you, you are enough. And that's one of those truths that I think takes a lifetime to live into. We can hear that in our heads, but for it to get to our hearts, that takes a long, long time. I'm hopefully moving more in that way, but it's been a journey for me. God wants to provide us with freedom from the fear of not being enough. And finally, I think he wants to provide us from freedom of the fear of being unloved. You look around at the world today, there are so many people that are just desperately searching for love. It's what I think that longing in all of our hearts. We want that love. And like I said before, there's beautiful human relationships that that love is evident in, but that ultimately is not going to satisfy. Because even in the most beautiful of human relationships, one of those people is going to ultimately not be there through death. But Christ provides this love that goes on forever. And that's how he closes this section. The final who question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Those are some really rough things. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's from Psalm 44. And it's interesting, a lot of the Psalms, the psalmists are like, man, this is really terrible and rough for us because we've been idiots. We've been worshiping the Baals. We've been ignoring the instructions of God and and God forgive us. But in Psalm 44, it doesn't say that. It says, God, we've been really, really good. But still, it's going really, really rough for us. Sometimes difficulties happen because we align with God and with Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus suffer? Because of anything he had done? (laughs) No. Because he was bearing our sin and our disobedience. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Really? When the sword comes, we're more than conquerors? See, most of us, even though we're Christians, we live with pretty much a horizontal perspective on life that the ultimate evil that can happen to me is that I die. That's not, according to Scripture, the ultimate evil that can happen to me. The ultimate evil that can happen to me is that I can die not knowing the God of this universe. And so, he says here, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Even on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we sometimes look at that as God had forsaken him. I don't think so. Oftentimes a Jew would quote the first line of a psalm and then in his mind the whole thing is there and what the end of that psalm says is basically God does rescue this person that is crying out and feeling forsaken by God but not really being forsaken by God. And so sometimes in life as we go through it and things happen to us, we feel that God has forsaken us and we are in good company with the God of the universe and Jesus Christ who came but to ultimately recognize that even if Death takes me out of this. I am more than a conqueror. I'm a hyper Nike. (laughs) Literally is the word there.
that there's no earthly tragedy, that there's no spiritual power, that there's nothing that this world can throw at us that will separate us from the love of Christ. And I think, to me, this is where my heart's at with my relationship with God. And I always say, we will do out of love what we will never do out of a sense of duty or obligation. My favorite prayer that we read often is Ephesians 3, that I would and you would be able to know this love of God that is beyond understanding. Why is that so important? It says right there, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's a pretty awesome promise. I want to walk around filled up with God. Like God's just permeating and penetrating my life, and it's just like, this is oozing out of me. Why? Why does it happen? Because I understand and know that what? God loves me. And when I do that, that's going to change who I am, and it's going to change my behavior, and it's going to change how I relate to other people. And there's no list of religious rules or do's and don'ts, especially in my life, because I'm a rebel and I see 65, and I say, oh, I can push it to close to 80 and be okay, because that's just me, right? But I will do for love, and I think you will do for love what you will never do out of a sense of duty or obligation. And so that is why it is so important for us to understand the love of Christ. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only, he gave his only son, that whoever, doesn't matter who you are, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have life that goes on forever. It's a quality of life here and that endures even through death. What's our response to this? To me, it's to trust Christ. We have to make a decision. That's what we ended up in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, there's two ways. You you choose. God's not going to twist your arm. I'm not going to twist your arm, but you've got to deal with who this Jesus is. And if he really said what he said, and if he really did rise from the dead, then I probably should pay attention to what he's saying. And it may cause me to swallow some pride. It may cause me to recognize, you know what, I'm, I'm not the center of the universe. I, everything doesn't revolve around me, even though I think it should. But he's a God that I need to bow the knee to. But he's not a God that does that in an obnoxious, he's a God that delights in me and wants to bless me and knows how I'm best designed to function. He wants to give me life. And so often I push that life away. I need to understand that he loves me if I'm going to follow him. Uh, stand if you would. I want to just read a passage. And this is usually a passage that is read when a lot of people have tuxes on and Ladies have really nice dresses on, and it's that famous wedding passage. But if you'd indulge me, take a little liberty here. John tells us that God is love. Not that love is God, but that God is love. And love is one of those really hard things to define. And so it has to be described more than defined. Scripture also tells me that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the Father. So I want to read this little passage inserting Jesus' name in there for love just 
for you to get a sense of the kind of love that Jesus Christ has for you, especially in light of the events that we celebrate around Easter. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, trusts all things, hopes in all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus and his love never ends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you now. And I believe that you were the God-man. That you defeated death. That you rose victorious from the grave. And because of that, I owe you all my allegiance and my life. But Lord Jesus, I also believe that you love me with a love that is beyond my ability to comprehend. That I am most satisfied when I walk with you in your ways. That you desire life for me and that is life to the full and life that is rich. Though Lord, sometimes there will be stuff that happens that I just don't comprehend, but help me at those times to look to the cross. And to understand that if that was what you were willing to give, how much more will you graciously not give us all things? Some of those things we've got to wait for. But thank you that you will return one day. That you will right all wrongs, that you will solve all injustices, that you will bring life to the full. Life as it was designed to be. Lord, for every person here, Lord, you know their heart. I just pray that, Lord, by your Spirit, you would just be at work in them. This is an individual decision that we need to make. Are we willing to follow you? And I just pray, Lord, that every person here would make that choice to enter into life. Understanding that so often our view is skewed. Our perspective is limited. But Lord, you are the God of hope and love. And that when we trust you, Lord, nothing, nothing that this life throws at us is able to separate us from your love. Lord, we see that most clearly with you on the cross. So thank you for your indescribable gift. May you help us to walk as children of a father that loves us more than we can understand and because of that to love all of those around us with your strength and with your power lord be at work in our hearts we pray so that the love of christ may leave this place with us and spread to all those that we encounter and it's in jesus powerful name our risen savior that we pray Amen. Thank you.